on stage. So I had it covered tonight. It was not going to be awkward for me. Uh, I, I travel a good bit, and um, we, do, we do a lot of camps and uh, conferences and things like that at our facility. But I travel a good bit and, and speak to students, high school and college mostly. And I get this one question a lot uh, where people will ask me kind of, you know, it's like if you work with young people, everyone else assumes you're an expert in that field, and that's one of those fields you can't be an expert in because the culture changes about every 18 months. And so it's impossible to really stay on top of it. Um, if you try to look cool, then you're always about 18 months behind because that's about the way it works. So then you just get made fun of for trying to look cool. Um, and when people ask me, you know, this question, it's always, I feel like it's a loaded question. They'll say something like, you know, what do you think about kids today or where students are today? They usually don't use the word students. They usually say kids. Some people say children. And uh, I'm like, I don't, I don't work at Barney camp, you know. Um, but they'll ask me, you know, children or kids or something like that, and they'll say, where do you, what do you think about this generation? And, and I'll tell you, I think that this, your generation and I just want to say this before we get into the word, uh, but I think your generation is kind of like Gideon's 300, where what's happening is the church is getting whittled down in number, because I think what, what here's what's happening, is that your generation is a generation where people are not going to be as apt to go to church and be cultural Christians, okay? And, and I don't, for some of you, that, that maybe you don't even understand what I mean when I say that, because you're removed from that. But I grew up in North Carolina, in the Bible Belt, with a dad who was a pastor, a real traditional church setting. Um, you know, I had to have a tie on every Sunday, had to have my shirt tucked in. I couldn't wear a really nice mullet. It, I could have like a starter kit, and that was as far as my hair could go, you know. And so I was, I was limited in my, even in the coolness factor in the 80s. And, uh, and, and I, can, I can remember things like the music that I was allowed to listen to, um, I couldn't listen to certain Christian music if it had, uh, like, like Shelley Moore type music, worldly, because there's drums in it, okay? So that's kind of the culture I grew up in, and, uh, and I remember, and now, um, which, by the way, let me say this. this, this song that we just sung, which is one of my new favorite songs, when the album comes out, backup vocals right here, baby, backup vocals, I'm on it. I'm not even kidding. I'm on it. I'm so stoked. I laughed all the way through the whole recording session because I'd never done anything like that before, and I felt like I needed to put my finger in my ear, so I did this the whole time, sung my way through it. Anyway, uh, sometimes, you ever feel like an idiot? No, no, y'all don't? Okay. Happens to me. Um, but anyway, so, I, anyway, I, what I'm getting at, I grew up in this really strict, strenuous culture, okay, where um, religion, what, Christianity was religion. And, it was, and when it was often void of relationship, for me. Now, I'm not saying that everyone in that culture that I grew up in, that was true. But for me, it was. It was just a cultural belief system. It was a cultural faith. And I don't, tonight, I want to get into my story. But um, I went through a season in my life where my faith got shaken enough that I had to determine, what do I believe and why do I believe it? And most of you have either gone through that or you're there now or it's coming. Whose faith is this? Why do I believe this? And... What I mean by the numbers are going to get trimmed down is that I, I don't think your generation is into cultural Christianity. Um, we're at a point where the lines have been drawn and people are either 
more apt to be in, more apt to be out. Where when I was growing up, so many people, and still my generation and older, you have a lot of people that, that consider themselves Christian just because of their cultural upbringing or, you know, kind of their family heritage or whatever. And so uh, what I want to talk to you tonight about, um, and, and, I, and I'll say this, by the way, I'm encouraged when I say to people, no, I think the numbers are going to be smaller, but the gospel impact both in the area of personal holiness within the church, with individual people, personal holiness, you understand what I'm saying? Not religion, but personal holiness, your pursuit of God, your pursuit of holiness, your war against sin, your, your desire to be conformed to the image of Christ within your generation, I think is, is fervent and ardent, and it's never been as passionate as it, in, as it is right now within the church in America. But I think the numbers are smaller. So you've got a smaller number, but they're people who mean to be here, okay? And what I want to warn you against before we get into John 4 tonight is this. If you're not careful, 20 years from now, you will have created a new cultural Christianity that will then be void of relational Christianity. That's the danger. So you're, you're in an exciting time in the church. Churches are booming. They're growing, especially church plants. I remember 10 years ago, everybody that I went to school with was planting a church, and I was like, that's crazy. You know, I don't understand why that we're doing that. There's churches everywhere. And churches are exploding now. And I see it was like totally the movement of the Lord in the 90s and early 2000s that guys were going. And, and now it's just picking up steam and their whole church planting networks and churches are popping up everywhere. And people are being genuinely discipled in a fresh new way. The danger is 20 years from now, your children are saying, I, Christianity, you know, it's a cultural thing for me. I was just raised. And, and, and what I don't want to see happen is I don't want us to replace something that doesn't need to be replaced and throw out something that doesn't need to be thrown out. But at the same time, we don't need to keep a mindset that we need to get rid of. And that is the mindset that heritage or style or a certain tradition or an abandonment of a certain tradition makes us more Christian. What makes us Christian is the relationship with Christ whereby we are conformed to his image day by day. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, literally one degree at a time from one degree of glory to the next until ultimately we're conformed to his image eternally. And so I, I'm excited for your generation and, for, and, and I, one of the reasons I really enjoy coming here is because talking about a group of people who on a weeknight um, have gathered to worship together. And so that's, that's the body of Christ, and that's exciting to me. So what I want to do tonight is I want to look at this lady's life in, uh, in John chapter 4. And I want to, um, I, I guess I want to start with a question and end with a question. The question I'll start with is to just kind of in your mind ask you, is, can you think of things in your life, uh, times in your life or situations in your life or occasions where maybe you had a life-changing experience? Just, you know, kind of ask yourself that question. I have a life-changing experience. Don't get, like, super spiritual on me and be like, yeah, when I met Jesus, okay, if you're a believer, understandably, that was the most life-changing experience. But, I mean, like, ima- imagine, if you will, um, or, or think, if you will, to a time where maybe something happened that was totally unexpected, totally out of the blue, life totally changed. Think about that. And think about... Um, and for some of you, maybe that's something that's real serious. Maybe it was a, tr- a tragedy. Maybe it's somebody in your family that died. Maybe it was uh, something that was done to you. Maybe it was something that was done for you. Maybe it was a decision that you made. Maybe it was something really funny. 
You know, like maybe it was something awesome, like you won the lottery. That would be fantastic. That would be a life-changing decision, buying that lottery ticket. But Christians don't buy lottery tickets, I heard, so don't. um, Just saying. Um, But, you know, like we've all got these defining moments and life-changing experiences, you know, where things happen. And this woman in John 4 gives us, I think, one of the coolest pictures of what, what true change occurs in the life of a person when they meet Jesus on his terms. I think that's, the, that's what's critical in, in us understanding what salvation is when we meet Jesus on his terms. Not on, not on uh, cultural Christiani- Christianity in, in its terms or not on the terms of religion or not on the terms of um, you know, what, what somebody else's experience was. You ever do that? You want to try to fit your experience into someone else's experience. And, and so you feel like your relationship with Christ should look like somebody else's or your, that time when Christ called you and you met Christ, you want it to look like somebody else's. And we're growing up and feeling, when I first became a believer, feeling very inadequate because I never like used crack cocaine or stole cars or got imprisoned. And it seemed like every testimony I heard, they were like, well, when I was in second grade, I started stealing cars and then I was shooting up you know, at recess, and I was like, ah, I need to go do something bad, you know. Um, but to be a good Christian, it's like I don't have a resume, you know. And, and, but thinking in your mind, the day that you came to terms with your salvation on Christ's terms, on his terms, and that's what happens with this lady. And we're going we're gonna to take a look at her tonight. And this is one of the people that when I get to heaven, I want to meet this girl. I really want to meet this lady. She's awesome. She's, she's amazing. And so, a um, little cultural background, this, this woman, she lives in a region called Samaria, and Samaria was a place that was very hostile towards um, the Jews, and the Jews were very hostile towards the Samaritans. I think a lot of misconception is that the Jews picked on the Samaritans, and the reality is it was basically um, gang warfare between Jews and Samaritans. They hated each other. They had fought for, for centuries, and, it was, a, and it, was, uh, it was an ethnic and religious issue. The Samaritans were a, a group of people who had formerly been Jews. Their ancestors were Jews who had intermingled with pagan cultures. And so right in the middle of Israel, you've got this region called Samaria. And so there were a lot of attacks in and out of Samaria. People didn't travel through there because it just wasn't safe. And so Jesus takes his disciples and they go into Samaria. We'll pick up the story in John uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Okay, so the story is Jesus comes into Samaria. It's a desert region. Climate is insane. Me and my daughters were watching, uh, and my son, I think, we we got around. Netflix is great. It's fantastic for for rednecks that don't have cable. Um, And so we're watching uh, not Bear Grylls, the other guy. Y'all know what I'm talking about? The other survivor guy. We're watching him. And, uh, yeah, Bear Grylls is like a pretty boy. The other dude's legit. Um, so that's my opinion. That's not in the Bible, but I'm just saying. I want to make sure and distinguish, you know, when I'm talking and when God's talking. Um, so uh, so that he's out in the desert, surviving in the desert, and it's like 140 degrees. And I'm like, that's this, okay? Jesus goes into this desert region where this lady, um, where he's going to meet this lady. And what he does 
is he goes to this specific well that was historically and traditionally known as Jacob's well because it was a well that had been given to um, Jacob um, 2,000 years before this, you know, a long, long time before this. And Jesus goes there, and it says that he had to go there. Now, I don't know um, if you, you know, what your theology is or what your understanding of who God is and how he functions and how he works, but God doesn't have to do anything he doesn't please doesn't have to do anything he doesn't choose or ordain or determine or sovereignly orchestrate. He works according to his will and his good pleasure. So you get to this verse and it says Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Had to pass through Samaria. And I believe that uh, what's going on here is that back at the time of Jacob, when this well was established, I believe God had purposed in his heart to meet this lady here on this particular day. On this particular day. It's, it's fascinating, and I think it's extremely personal. And we realize what a relational God that we have. We realize what a relational person Jesus was as the God-man. You see this throughout John. He's continually building a relationship with people. He's all about relationship. And so he goes continually and he meets people where they are, and he works through the lives of people individually. And I believe um, that before the foundations of the world, Jesus had ordained and orchestrated this meeting with this lady. So he goes to the, he goes to the well at noon, at noon. Now, to give you a little background on this woman, before we actually read it in the text, she was, she was what, it's, it's hard to kind of translate in our culture what she would have been, but she was a prostitute, um, or maybe, uh, you know, like a porn star or someone that was, you know, just a sexual outcast of society. We'll, we'll learn later that she had been in and out of husband, uh, or marriages with different husbands and in and out of living relationships, and she had this really brutal track record. So she was very sexual, and she was very sexual either in the way she manipulated or in the way that she had been manipulated. Perhaps she was a victim of abuse, maybe as an early kid or a young kid, maybe early in life. She got sexually abused, and that started a pattern of sexual activity. She was confused. At any rate, she had made choices that had taken her down a really, really, really painful path. And that kind of a lifestyle is always destructive, and it's always painful. And so Jesus comes there at noon because she's going to be at the well at noon. And, and it's, fa- it's fantastic because the women in the village where she lived would have gone to draw water at daylight and at dark when the, when the desert temperature was about 50 degrees cooler. They would have gone when it was just cooling down or just before it heated up. And so she goes out there at noon when it's 120, 130 degrees, and Jesus meets her there. She would have been, you know, cloaked in black, veil over her face, totally covered, carrying these water pots, okay, 40, 50, maybe 60-pound water pots. Jesus goes and meets her, and he strikes up a conversation with her. It says um, in verse 7 that Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So Jesus says to her, "Um, I need some water from you. And she says, "Uh, 
I, I, you can't talk to me because I'm a woman and I'm a Samaritan. See, Jesus is just shattering. One thing you need to understand and I need to understand about Christ and the way that he works is he does not ask permission to speak or act or do when it comes to your life and when it comes to my life. Christ, now, now I want to be clear that we are very much responsible for the way we respond to Christ and the way we act in our lives and the decisions that we make and the, and the things that we do with the time that we're given in this life. But when it comes to the way Christ speaks and works, he is in absolute authority over all of the created order, all of the created order. And she's meeting Jesus for the first time, and what she's going to be exposed to is the fact that, here's what happens a lot of times, I think, is that we have a view or a picture or an understanding of Jesus where we see him first as a, as a human, and that's kind of the picture we get of him as a humanitarian-type worker. He's really a good guy. He did some miracles. He healed some people. He gave people food. He gave poor people clothes. He kind of modeled for us how we should live. And so as a result, you know, we should make sure that everybody gets plenty of uh, clean drinking water around the world and a pair of Toms, right? Because that's what Jesus would want to happen, obviously. But if we're not careful and we focus on the humanity of Christ, the, the danger is this. I mean, I'm all for people getting toms, you know, in third world countries, but I've been in a lot of those countries and most of them don't want shoes. They've got leather feet, you know, because they've never had shoes. Um, but, but that's great. We need to do humanitarian work and we need to go make sure that people have clean drinking water and vaccinations. And we need to go make sure that people understand that there's a God who loves them and is calling them out of darkness into light more than we need to make sure that they have clean drinking water. So Jesus comes to her, and he immediately begins to deal with the spiritual need in her life using the platform of the physical need. That's what we need to do. That's what I would say if you're a believer and you're going to do something with your life, make sure that that your life is centered around the gospel, but also make sure that ministry and missions is gospel-centered, not man-centered. That's the danger. It's a danger with a charismatic culture and a charismatic generation where people are excited to go make a difference. Yeah, but let's make sure that we make a difference by submitting to the gospel and its authority and its power. So Jesus shows up and he begins to expose immediately who he is and who she is. And so there's this conversation that occurs um, and she says, uh, well, I want some of the water you're talking about. Jesus says, I got some water that I can give you. And she's like, I want some of that water. And he's like, oh, I'm talking about you know, water that's not drawn from a well. This is, this is different water. And he's talking in, in spiritual terms and she's kind of confused and she's trying to hang on and she's drawn to him and she's not sure exactly why, but she can't get away from him. And she's drawn, no man has ever spoken to her. Definitely no man's ever spoken to her in public. This is a woman who lives in shame, keeps her face covered. None of the women in the community will talk to her. Nobody will have anything to do with her. In fact, they probably are scared to death that she's going to get um, you know, involved with her husbands. And so she's a total outcast. And Jesus is talking to her, and he's talking to her. And she's going, there's, this, there's something here. There's something here. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm the living water. I'm the living water. And the, we could run for weeks with that analogy, that picture. Just the reality that, that Christ is what sustains us physically, spiritually, emotionally, that he is the centerpiece of the created order, that the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1 that he sustains and upholds the universe by the breath of his lips, that 
Paul says to the Colossians that all things are held together in Christ, by Christ, for Christ. That Paul says in Romans 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That Christ is central in everything and he refuses, he refuses to leave heaven and become a man so that he can be anything other than central in my life or your life. He's not interested in that. He's not interested in being an accessory to your life or my life. He's not interested in being an accessory to this woman's life. Because, see, she's really devastated. She's really broken. Some of you, before you met Jesus, you were really, really, really messed up. And some of you, maybe you're like me. You grew up culturally pretty Christian. And then all of a sudden, one day, the light bulb goes off and you go, there's more. There's more. There's got to be more. And you begin to follow Jesus. At any rate, whatever your story is, there's a point where you're snatched out of darkness and brought into light by the power of the gospel, by the authority of Jesus, by this man, Jesus, who is the God-man, who comes to you, and he comes to me, and he comes to this woman, and he says, uh-uh, you're coming with me. And, it, and with all that she carried in her life, I promise you, she didn't need an accessory to her life. She didn't need to just accessorize her world. It wasn't like, you know, well, I don't know, Jesus, I'm not really, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm, my religion's not really working out for me. I've been, I've been thinking about shopping for religion um, and seeing what else I could try. And so maybe it wasn't like that. This is a woman who's desperate and who needs salvation. And Jesus comes to her and exposes his identity to her. And he does it at first quite subtly, and then he begins to unveil the reality of who he is. It's, it's fantastic. There's a story, John, John talks about it, it's in Isaiah 6, where you get this, and it's not a story, it's, a, it's kind of a picture into the throne room where Jesus is seated on a throne, and, uh, and Isaiah looks into the throne room and he sees Jesus seated on a throne, and there's smoke, and there's fire, and there's angels hovering around the throne room of, of Christ, and hovering around the throne of Christ, and they can't look at him. It says that they've got wings, a set of wings that covers their face, and a set of wings that they fly with, and a set of wings that covers their feet, and they just hover right up next to the throne of God, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And then there's a scene of the throne room in the book of Revelation where John sees into the throne room of Christ, and when he sees that, he sees those angels hovering around the throne, but then he sees 24 elders. I don't know who these guys are. I read, I've tried to figure out who the elders are around the throne room. i I was like, that'd be pretty sweet, you know, if you could sign up to be one of those guys. Some people are like, well, they're the 12 disciples. And I'm like, that can't be because Judas, duh, I'm not, I haven't even been to seminary and I can figure that one out. And then they're like, it's the 12 disciples and it's the 12 heads of the tribes of Israel. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. But that's still only 23 because the Judas deal. And they're like, well, you know, they replaced him with another. I'm like, I don't know who they are. I don't, there's 24 elders and whoever they are, they wear crowns on their head. Now, up in the hills, you wear a crown on your head, they're going to come lock you up, okay? You'll be walking around with a crown, unless, you know, a Burger King crown maybe. And, then, and, then, and you can only pull that off if you're either, A, legitimately crazy, because crazy people can do stuff. If you're crazy, you can do stuff. You know, you don't have to give an explanation. It's like, you know, it's like if you're riding a lawnmower, wearing a Burger King crown, and nobody asks questions. They're like, yeah, those two go together. He's cool. 
But if you're in a business suit riding a lawnmower, people are like, we need to check this guy out. Make sure at least he's not near my kids, you know? So, so if you're crazy, but these elders in Revelation chapter 4 wearing crowns, and it says they take their crowns off and they throw them down at his feet. So you've got, I don't know who, somebody important enough to wear big honking crowns on their head, and they're throwing them at the feet of Jesus, and they're going, holy, holy, holy. And then you've got angels hovering around the throne of Jesus going, holy, 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 and nobody can look at him, and the people that are having the vision of heaven can't even describe what they see because they can't see it because they can't look at it. And Isaiah says, can't look up, can't look up. I'm undone. I'm unclean. I can't see. I can't look on Jesus. I can't see Jesus face to face when he's on his throne. I can't see Jesus. John in Revelation saying, well, I see the elders and they're throwing their crowns down, and I see smoke and fire and it's loud and it's scary and I'm freaking out just having this vision of heaven. And Jesus leaves that to come to earth for one purpose and one reason and that is to rescue condemned people. Because he said one chapter early, earlier, one conversation earlier, maybe two conversations earlier when he's talking to a guy named Nicodemus, he says, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. I came into the world to save the world because the world's already condemned. That's the problem. And he's like, I came to bring salvation to people who need to be rescued. One of the things I love about Billy Graham is all through my life, man, I got to go see him and hear him when I was like in maybe fourth grade. It was awesome because Johnny Cash did the music that night. I was like, this is heaven, isn't it? Johnny Cash, Billy Graham. I was like, Jesus, now would be good. Right now, just get us. But I got to go hear, hear him. And uh, one of the things, I was, I was in a hotel room uh, maybe a month ago. We were traveling on the road, and it was late. We, uh, we were at an event, and we went to the, and got settled down. I, have my, I try to travel with my family as often as I can. And I get my kids around because Billy Graham crusade is on from like 1973. And I mean, his, he had the sweetest hair to ever see in my life. It was awesome. It was like televangelist hair. And... Uh, but he's preaching, and I'm like, listen, listen to this man's message. Just listen to him. We just sit and listen. And it's just simple gospel, simple gospel that says Jesus Christ left heaven to come here because everybody screwed up and nobody can help themselves. God doesn't help those who help themselves. He comes and rescues people who are incapable of clawing out of the proverbial pit that they're in because of their own sin or because of the fallen world and the jacked up place that we have to dwell for 70 or 80 years. And he comes and he rescues us out of the condition that we're in morally and spiritually and emotionally. And he meets this woman at this well and he says, I'm going to get you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to save you. And if you're a believer, you remember that. You remember what that was like where you were just like, I'm done. Like Isaiah when he saw Jesus on the throne, I'm done. I'm your whatever I got to do to be with you. And you remember when Jesus met you and snatched you out of darkness and gave you the living water. And if you're not a believer and you're here, that's what you need. I promise you, that's what you need. Nothing in this world satisfies your spiritual thirst but Jesus. Driving down the road yesterday, we started two days ago maybe. We were in Winston-Salem over the weekend before we came here. So somewhere in the mix we pulled into Walmart, because, I mean, that's what you do when you're confused in life. You go to Walmart, you know. 
It's the cosmic genie in the bottle. And uh, so we pull into Walmart. Look, this will make everybody feel good. Everybody go in and pick something out for snacks. My son comes out with like a 12-pack of Hawaiian punch. I was like, easy there, Hoss. You have one of those. <laughs> so we get going down the road. We, you know, we'd eaten something salty. I don't remember, but everybody's thirsty. And I'm like, I don't want to stop again. We just, you know, it's like, we got to get where we're going. And Tuck's like, I'm so, my son, he's like, I'm so thirsty. And I'm like, here, drink a Hawaiian punch. Well, that's awful because all that's going to do is make you thirstier. So now your body's OD'd on salt and sugar, and your insulin levels are through the roof. And so 10 minutes later, you're like, I'm so thirsty. <laughs> Those Hawaiian punch people, they're smart. They're smart. Should be a label on there. But that, like, like that's, the, the, like spiritually speaking, and the, like to live in this world, to live in this culture, to live in this society, and to thirst and to try to feel, if you're not a believer and you're here, I'm telling you, you will just continually feel momentarily the thirst that you have spiritually or relationally or emotionally, and it'll just be, and every time it'll get less and less satisfying. But as it gets less and less satisfying, your life will get more and more morally debunked, like, like absolutely downward spiral, out of control. How do I recover from this? And that's where this lady is. Because she's lived out cultural Christianity because she says it to Jesus in verse 12. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And then jump down to verse 15. The woman said to her, uh, sir, give me this water so that I'll not be thirsty. You have to come here to draw water. And then Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She's like, okay, I'm a descendant of Jacob, and my parents went to church their parents went to church, so I think I'm good. And that was her response to Jesus exposing her sin. Jesus says, here's the deal. You're living in an adulterous relationship right now with a man that's not your husband, but it wouldn't really matter if he was your husband because you've gone through husbands at a pretty rapid rate in your life. In fact, you've been married five times, and you are absolutely a moral, emotional spiritual train wreck. Don't tell me where your daddy went to church. That, don't, that, that means nothing to me. It doesn't, what, what she does is she says, here's my credentials. I got a cousin who's in the secret service. I love going places like, like, like you know, guys who are in that stuff, they don't throw their credentials around. I would be so abusive. I'd be like at Toys R Us. Come in, we're coming to the front. We're coming to the front. I got to a very important child here, you know. I was at Harris Teeter. Is that the, somewhere there's a Harris Teeter around here. And I went there today. And it must have been like everybody got their food stamps day. Because I'm just saying that's how it was in my family. Because it was like 40 people in a line. All I needed was six candles and a lighter for my baby girl's birthday party we were having at Moe's. That's all I need. It was like, everybody's at Moe's eating. We got a little cake. We're like, we need six candles. I'm like, I'm on it. I'm on it. I go to Harris Teeter's, like, lying out the door. I'm like, what in the world am I going to do? 
I just need six candles. I'm freaking out. I don't even know what I'm telling y'all right now. What? <laughs> I take after my mom. She talks a lot. What am I talking about? Credentials. My cousin. Thank you all. Y'all may be some of the 24 elders. I don't know. I'm just saying. All right. So anyway. So yeah, man, if I went like Harris Teeter, I'd be like, secret service coming through. Sorry, I said I wouldn't yell. Microphone man, my bad. Okay. I said, I said, man, I ain't going to yell. I ain't loud. I ain't, I'm, I'll, be, I'll be chill. It's like I'm serious. Um, nah, my bad, dude. I lied in church, didn't I? That's bad. I'm not one of the elders, apparently. Um, so, so, but, but like, I'm like, we go out, to, we stop, we swing through Zaxby's, and I'm like, dude, show them your, show them your, hold your thing up there, your badge thing. It's like a wallet. It's this big. He holds it out, and it's like, he opens it, and, he, and it like flops around. I'm like, dude, show them that. He's like, no, man, we're at Zaxby's. I don't want people to know. So I'm like, he's in the Secret Service. They're like, you're not, obviously. <laughs> you know, maybe the DEA or something where you, where you need to look like a crackhead, but uh, not the Secret Service. But so this woman's like, here, Jesus, here's my credentials. Here they are. See, my daddy went to church. My granddaddy went to church. I'm from these people that live up on this mountain. And I know the Jews, you guys don't know us. We're Samaritans and you stay away. But, and we go to church up on this one mountain. We got our own temple. It's awesome. And everybody here, we're all good. Um, we're good. And she's just trying to, she's lying to herself. She knows she's not good. She knows she's not okay. She knows her credentials don't get it done for her spirit. She is, listen, y'all, you can't live in five broken marriages and be okay with that. Any more than some of you can live in the last five broken relationships you've been in and be okay with that. Because we weren't made to do that to our heart. We weren't made for that. And what that is, is it's taking this huge void in a person's life and throwing marbles into it. And it just, it just rattles around in there, and it just makes the void more painful. Just painful. And Jesus is like, you don't, I don't, I'm God. You get some of the relationship that I want to give to you, your life will change. It'll change. You'll be healed. You'll be saved. You'll be rescued. You'll be snatched out. Even if the people in that town keep talking trash about you and pushing you out and running all over you, you will be okay because you'll understand that you were created for an eternal relationship, not a momentary one. Eternal, guys. You're created for eternity. Jesus wants eternal relationship with you, but he wants to activate it now. Cultural Christianity doesn't provide that. It provides momentary exercise. It does not provide eternal relationship. He wants to wreck your life and give you a new one. That's what he wants. That's what he wants from her. And he says to her, verse 23, jump down to verse 23. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. See, here's, here's the danger. Here's the danger. 
The danger is that we either worship in spirit or we worship in truth, but we don't do both. And, and a lot of times, and I see this happen all the time. I mean, listen, we, you have the, the danger in front of you of being so in love with theology. This is some of you. Some of you are thinkers. Some of you are thinkers. You're like, you know, you're thinking. You, you're, you're, you got a mechanical mind. You got a scientific mind. You got an analytical mind, and you're thinking, you know, and, and, and everything, you're picking it apart in your, in, in your brain. You know, like, like that's just the way you're put together. And for you, if you're not careful, Christianity will be about truth, but it'll be void of spiritual activity. That's the way the Pharisees were. That's the way the Sadducees were. Who are those people? They're religious authorities in Jesus' day. And in Mark chapter 12, Jesus looks at them. They had memorized the whole Bible word for word. They could write it down so that every time they wrote it, letter was the, each letter was in the exact same spot on the page each time they wrote it. Like they, and they practiced strenuous religious exercise. And Jesus says, you know what your problem is? You don't know the word of God. Why? Because they worship in truth, but there's no spirit. It's just an exercise. My dad, first time I ever preached at crusade was right after my dad died. And I basically told his story. It was fresh on my heart. My dad went to Appalachian State, played football, got saved, met Jesus right before his senior year. He, he and my mom got married. They both met the Lord. He was called to preach. He went to seminary, got his master's. Then he went back to seminary, got his whatever comes next. You know, it's a... Uh, doctorate. He was, yeah, he was a doctor. He had that on his name card. I remember that. Doctor. <laughs> you know, kids unimpressed with those things, apparently. He knew the Bible. I have a book that he wrote. I have a book that he wrote on theology. And he walked away from my mom and our family and the church and walked into an adulterous relationship, ultimately alcoholism, pornographic addiction, until God took him out of this world. How does that happen? Because you can't just worship in truth. And Jesus says, listen, baby, truth is good, but not if it's void of spirit. You can stand here and quote scripture to me all day long. That's not good enough. And on the other extreme, you can't just worship in spirit. I, went, I remember, ooh, this is a crazy story. I got five minutes and I'm done. Listen to me. I went to a, uh, uh, when I was a kid, I was probably 12 or 13 years old. My dad took me to a snake handling service. For kicks. Because who wouldn't go to that? For real. You don't, don't you even dare tell me you wouldn't go if you had an opportunity to go spectate that deal. All right, I'm just saying. I'm 12 years old, 13, 12, 13. My dad's like, hey, there's a traveling little tent revival coming to town. And they're going to, I grew up in Haywood County. Now, if y'all, anybody from Haywood County? I don't know if that's good or bad. A few of us went to college, but I'm just saying. Um, and then some of us dropped out of college. Uh, but anyway, so we go down there, and th- these guys, have, it's like a traveling troop, you know. They're going around, and they get, and I remember going, and we're standing around. It's a tent revival. There's like 30 people in there. They're the worshipers. They're having the worship service, and you got a, a lady over there playing this really weird organ instrument. It's real loud. It's like, it's just crazy. And, uh, and there's maybe two or 300 people around the tent that are just watching. I mean, like Haywood County, Mountain Rednecks, like spitting Copenhagen and checking it out, you know, and like, this is awesome, man. I want to see the snakes. And there's no snakes yet. And, they, and then somebody says, oh, the sheriff's department showed up and confiscated all the snakes, to which I'm thinking, we have that law? <laughs> S- 
So we thought it was good to make that law? That's crazy. That means that somewhere down the line, this must have been like a normal practice around here. So all the snakes are gone, and I'm kind of like, Daddy, he said it ain't no snake. Do you want to go home? And my dad's like, no. My dad, he really wanted to check it out. He was trying to see what was going on. Well, about halfway into this thing, music gets real loud, and somebody must have had a timber rattler tucked away in their handbag or something because they bring one out and start crowd, they start crowd surfing this rattlesnake. And in true mountain boy, hillbilly style, one of the deputies goes in with one of those big, long stick grabber things with the handle and grabs it and holds it down while the other one shoots it about eight times with his Glock. He's like, bop, 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 bop. I was like, that's what I'm talking about. I want to go to this church. But it was crazy because a week or two later, the guy got bit, and he would not go to the doctor, and he died. He died. And his whole thing was, he took a passage of Scripture that was, that was given to a certain group of people concerning a certain situation, and he distorted it, and in good faith, y'all, I think that, I mean, my dad, I stood and listened to my dad talk to that man for an hour after this thing was over. I think his heart was for the Lord, but he had abandoned truth. It was just a spiritual high for him. It was like, and, and here's my fear. Don't show up here because this is the kind of place, like this ministry or this church that we're in, or some of the, I mean, you, got, you guys are like church rich in this city. You got good churches. I mean, I got, it's, it's unbelievable to me to think of the opportunities that you have to worship in specific places in this city. I mean, church home shouldn't be a problem for you. And I would plug and say this, and I know the crew people would support it. This is not your church. Crusade's not your church. It's awesome, and I love it. But you need to be plugged in and involved under pastoral authority, under church authority. And there are good churches here. Good churches. And here's the thing. I think this guy was a good man. He was spiritual. The danger that you guys have is that you would fall into the same mistake he fell into, though you may not start handling snakes, I hope. But you start going because it feels good to worship with God's people. It feels good. If you're a Christian, you can be an immature Christian and enjoy being in the presence of people worshiping God. The Spirit of God lives in you. Spirit and truth. Jesus says you got spirit and truth. You better be tethered to the Word of God. You better be rooted in Scripture. Don't you dare roll up in here on Thursday nights or on Sunday morning or wherever it is that you go throughout the week for other worship opportunities and throw your hands up and worship God and ignore this seven days a week. Don't you do that. Don't do that. And I'm not saying you've got to be a theologian. Remember when I first got saved and I'm like, worshiping God. I'm at this camp we were working at, and this guy was acting like an idiot beside me, and I grab him. He's, he's like turning it into a mosh pit, and he's slamming kids around. He's a staff member. He got weighed like 250, and he's like, whoa, yeah, and he's like roaring. He's like into screamo music, which apparently there are going to be people like that in heaven, which is going to be an adjustment for some of us. <laughs> and he's like slamming, and I was like, I was, it was so quenching my spirit, and I was like, hey, and I just grabbed this guy and belly to belly, boom, and I said, stop it. Our God is an awesome God. 
Because when you ain't musically talented, you know, you got to latch on when you can't. But the danger is that you'll worship in spirit and you'll be excited, but you better start growing and being tethered to the word of God. That's a true story. I asked my wife. She witnessed it. She was like, I can't believe I married you. <laughs> About once a week, something like that would happen in the early days. Listen, guys, here's what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying. This woman, when these two, when these two things collided in her life, and she began to worship in spirit and in truth, and, she, and the veil falls off of her eyes, as Paul talks about in his letter to the Corinthians, the veil comes down and she sees Jesus. The light bulb, the switch goes off. And she goes, this is God. And she goes back to her city, and it's a little bitty town in the mountains outside of this little place called Sychar. And in verse 39, it says this, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Listen, when you meet Jesus, if you're a believer and you love to worship, hands go up and the music's good, me too. I love it. It's awesome. I can't even sing good. I, and I, don't, I have a hard time worshiping corporately because I'm like, I'm ADHD and ADD. Some of y'all are like that. And so I'm like, but man, when I'm alone having my worship time, I'm like, iPod in, I can't play guitar, but I'll play guitar because I can't hear it because I got my iPod cranked up and I'm singing. And in my mind, I'm playing along and I, I worship. But you got to worship in spirit and in truth. At the same time, don't go stick your nose in a theology book and memorize every page of Grudem's systematic theology and ignore the fact that people need to see the effects of the gospel in your life. Christ gloriously snatches this woman out of darkness. She says, you're the Christ. She, she proclaims it. You're the, you're the Christ. He exposes his identity. It's the first time this happens. So in verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he, the Messiah, the Christ. And as a result, listen, the Samaritans were an unreached people group. She goes back to her town. Everybody comes to know Jesus. Everybody. The gospel reaches Samaria. I'm going to leave you with within one other question. What change has the gospel made in your life? What difference are you living out now? What are you going to do with the gospel? What do you do? How do you respond to the gospel day after day after day after day? Not just tonight, not just the night you gave your life to Jesus, but every moment of every day. How do you respond to the gospel? Tether yourself to the word of God. Be rooted in scripture and out of what God does in your life and by the leading and the power and of his spirit in you. And Paul says in Romans 8, 13, all who are being led by the spirit of God are sons of God. And he says in Romans 8, 11, the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives inside of you. Walk by the Spirit, Galatians 5, 16, and you'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. Romans 8, 13, you will put to death the deeds of the flesh, and you will be led by the Spirit in your life. But do so under the authority and the power of the Word of God because of the relationship Jesus has called you into. Think of what he's done. I was sitting in this morning in my own quiet time, and all of a sudden I was overwhelmed by the rea reality that Christ came and got me at my proverbial well. He met me. And if you're a believer, that well was put there, I believe, 2,000 years before this so that Christ could have a place to meet this woman. It's appointed. Christ comes after you. Surrender. Submit. He didn't get off of the throne to come be an accessory to sit in the back seat of your life. He didn't do that. You guys ready? Let's pray. God, I pray that
as we finish in this time of worship, that we would do so in spirit and in truth. That we would be uh, in love with you for the authority over which you defeat and have defeated sin and death and hell. That we would love you for the fact that you have rescued us, that you've brought us out of darkness into light, that you have redeemed us, that we, as we sung earlier, we are your redeemed ones, that we are purchased. I pray that we would be blown away by that. But God, I pray that we would be obedient to do as you commanded throughout the Gospel of John, to abide in your word, to be rooted in truth, to be not resting on our own credentials, but on your credentials, on the work of Jesus on the cross. Lord Jesus, that our righteousness would rest in your work alone, that we would understand that you became sin so that we could become righteous. I pray for people tonight, Lord, who are in the same situation or similar that this woman was in. Maybe they're playing a game, doing church thing, doing crusade. Maybe they're here and they're searching and this is a one-time deal for them. I pray you snatch them tonight, grab them, and meet them here and bring them into the light. I pray for those of us who are asleep in the light that you would awaken us with spiritual desire and the promise of your word to conform us to your image. I pray that we would worship right now in spirit and in truth. In your name, Jesus.